Hi, my name is um, Christian Schernberg. I am a hematologist uh, based in Hövde, Sweden, and I was one of the founding members of the Young EHA Committee. And I'm here today with uh, David Rees to talk about um, sickle cell disease and precision medicine. Could you um, introduce yourself, David? Um, David Rees, I'm a paediatric hematologist at King's College Hospital in London with a main interest in sickle cell disease and other inherited red cell disorders. Um, could you give us a definition of precision medicine and explain how this concept um, can be applied to sickle cell disease? Well, I think it, it's a difficult term to define precisely, at least for me. I think it's become a fashionable term really over the last 10 years, driven by advances in genomics and bioinformatics and the basic idea that you can, even when someone has the same disease, you can identify different groups within that disease that can be treated differently to get better outcomes. And I said it's driven really by that is a fairly simple principle that is always applied to medicine, that you try and treat people in the best possible way for their disease. But it's been driven really by, you know, high throughput genomics, particularly in, in the malignant field and in hematology, particularly in, in AML and other conditions where there are clones with a lot of differences. And then it's become more widely applied to anything that you want to make sound interesting. I think in the context of sickle, it's not very obvious. Um, I mean, I think it's a useful idea to think about, but at the moment it's difficult to apply, apply it very precisely because sickle cell disease is, um, it's all, genetically it's all the same, although there are obviously, you know, non, uh, there are the genetic differences between individual that means the disease is expressed differently. So there's certainly scope for developing it in sickle cell, but at the moment there are few treatments really and there isn't a good way of predicting prognosis so I think it's a useful thing to think about and to work towards but it's nothing like the situation say in some malignancies where you have a huge range of different treatments and a huge range of different diseases which you can try and fit the the treatment to. What are the main uh, prognostic factors and biomarkers? Well, in sickle cell disease overall, if you had to choose one prognostic factor, that would be where you live. So if you live in, a, in an African country, then your outcome is, is so much worse than if you live in a high-income country, I mean, as a, in a low-income country, where in most African countries, it still seems that more than, more than 80% of people die in childhood, where, say, in London, that in sickle cell disease, that is a very rare event. The, the childhood mortality of sickle is only slightly increased compared to the baseline population. And obviously, that's not a genetic difference. That These are genetically more or less identical populations. This is to do with you know, access to health care and, and more, not even medicine really, but socioeconomic factors. Within sickle cell disease, where you know, you're looking at high-income groups, then there are some factors that, that there are different types of sickle cell disease. And if you have SS, sickle cell anemia, you do worse than if you have SC, say, a less, a less severe type. And there are some you know, more traditional genetic factors which can be identified and do influence outcomes. Particularly alpha thalassemia has quite a profound effect on a lot of manifestations of sickle cell disease. And in African populations, about 30% of people carry that. So it is possible to look at that and to give parents or patients some prognostically useful information. It's not useful enough to say, you know, you will live this long or you need this treatment and you'll do better. But it is treatment that is, um, it is information that is useful at this stage. There are other factors that people have looked at. And the hemoglobin F level, this is another quite important determinant. And if you, if you have more hemoglobin F, you're 
you're um, more likely to do well and have fewer problems. In general, that's something you measure biochemically. It's not necessary to do genetic testing, although the, there, is, there are genetic tests which predict hemoglobin F levels, but those are in fact less useful than measuring the hemoglobin F level itself. What are the main drugs currently available? Because I think some of them actually work to increase hemoglobin F, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think one problem with precision medicine is that there aren't that many drugs available. The, the, the most universal drug is penicillin, which is given where available to, to everyone in the, to prevent early childhood death from sepsis. And then, as you said, hydroxyurea is the other drug that is currently, there's good evidence really that pretty much everyone benefits from taking it from a, an early age. And that works primarily by boosting the hemoglobin F level, which reduces the rate of sickle polymerization, which has a you know, profound impact on all the manifestations of the disease. And that, as I said, again, in terms of precision medicine, the fact those drugs are pretty much given to everyone, so it's not, not really, it doesn't fit the precision medicine, medicine models, model very well. There are a few... Although sickle cell disease is very common and an old disease, there have been very few diseases. But in the last five years, then there have been two or three other drugs emerged which have been licensed in some countries and will be licensed in others, being those being prisonlizumab, which is a P-selecting blocker and reduces frequency of pain, and L-glutamine, which is meant probably provide some sort of antioxidant protection and has a a weak effect on the frequency of pain. It's been licensed in the States, but not been licensed in Europe, and because of people not, or the EMA not being convinced by the clinical trials, and it seems unlikely that that will become available in in Europe. And a third drug, Voxlator, which binds to hemoglobin and increases the hemoglobin level by increasing the oxygen affinity, which is an interesting drug and certainly has an effect on the hemoglobin level, um, but it's not very clear what clinical benefits it gives at the moment. I'm sure it probably has some clinical benefits, but those are yet to be defined. And it may well be that Voxlator is a drug that, you know, where you can be more precise, that it seems likely some patients will benefit from it more than others, and, but at the moment we can't predict that. And hydroxyurea, which is the mainstay even at the moment, that was a serendipitous um, discovery, right? Yes, definitely. It was um, it was found. It was really used initially in another in trial of other drugs in the seventies to promote hemoglobin F, and it was chosen as a safe option because it's <laughs> relatively non toxic as these drugs go, and it's cheap and already available. And in fact, it did as well as the drugs they were testing, and and it was taken on as the drug to be developed rather than rather than the. Um, the drugs. I mean, it's a very, it is a very effective drug. It's, you know, it has a profound effect on hemoglobin, hemoglobin levels, and almost everything you can measure in sickle, every outcome it improves, and that's been shown in, in high-income countries and low-income countries now. Mm. Having said that, it's not curative, and it's, it is, it's borderline transformative. I mean, it is an important drug, but it's not like this is so good we don't need anything else. It's, a, it's better than not having it, but there's a huge amount of scope for improvement. Yeah. So do you think a precision-based medicine um, approach uh, will become feasible and even in low-income countries? Or? I don't know. I probably lack imagination. I think at the moment, the, of the hydroxy and penicillin are cheap. The other drugs are expensive. They're, you know, £100,000 a year or something. So the idea of even your multi-drug therapy or precision medicine in, in 
High-income countries is barely affordable. So at the moment, it's a million miles from being affordable and applicable to most of the people with the disease, you know, eight, more than 80% of whom live in low-income countries. Um, I think things will move on and there will be, you know, the drugs will become cheaper and there will be more drugs available and people are working specifically to develop, you know, small molecules which are cheap and can be used in low-income countries. So I think it probably may happen, but not in the current form in which it's used in, in say, in leukemia where you have, um, you know, I think high throughput genetic Sequencing, again, from the, the millions of people in Africa with sickle cell disease is a very, very, very long way away mm-hmm. and probably will not become necessary because curative treatments will mean that you, you cure everyone so it becomes less important to identify prognostic groups then. And you think that'll be gene therapy-based? Yeah, I think so. I think that's the aim. Gene therapy is still at a very early stage and there are encouraging trials in again, in high-income countries, showing, showing benefits. I think it still is a long way from being a widespread treatment. It's still very expensive and not affordable in most countries. But I think there are developments seen with the in vivo gene therapy and direct correction of the sickle mutation, which you can imagine would potentially offer a curative, mm-hmm. fairly cheap option for, you know, for pretty much every patient with sickle cell disease. Although, obviously, that's a very long way away and maybe... You know, I think it may not be possible. People are dubious about whether in vivo gene therapy will ever be effective. But whilst it's a, currently it requires myeloblative treatment, and that is always going to limit its, its applicability to, to most people in the world. Where do you see sickle cell management uh, will go in the future? Well, I think if in the distant future, I, th- I really do think that probably is what will happen, that there'll be a relatively simple... Yeah, in vivo treatment that you know often that cures the sickle mutation and you know, corrects the actual genetic defect you know in the medium or long term that is easy to administer in the mm-hmm. same way that vaccines are in the shorter term I think you know there was if you looked at how to improve most people so you know pub, simple public health measures and availability of you know hydro, although hydroxyurea is effective it's still not available to the vast majority of people in the in the world with sickle cell disease so if you had to do one thing to improve people's health now it would be um you know to to work out ways of making that more more available and more um affordable although it's not an expensive drug in the medium term, I think the new drugs like prisonizumab and Oxlator may have a role, but I think if you accept that the goal is to cure everyone with sickle cell disease, then the disease-modifying treatments are not the, you know, they're useful and, and you know, they, maybe they lead to better treatments and there may be small tablets that are very effective, um, you know, small molecules that are very effective at treating the condition. And But these drugs, I think, are on the way to developing that. They're not the final solution. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you.